3: And away we go. Episode 61 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Wednesday, May 12, 2021. The day on which the NFL's 2021 regular season schedule is released. Yes, it is schedule release day. Happy schedule release day. We will on Thursday's installment of this podcast know and be talking about the Washington football team's 2021 regular season schedule. We already know the opponents. We've known the opponents since the end of last regular season and since the expansion to the 17-game season. Remember, that added game for Washington is at the Buffalo Bills. Uh, yes, the schedule appears as if it will be difficult, but that word appears is a funny thing. Sometimes some things appear to be one thing and then end up being a very different thing. When Washington's 2020 regular season schedule came out, everyone was shaking in their shoes over the three consecutive road games in November and December at the Dallas Cowboys on Thanksgiving, then at the Pittsburgh Steelers, then at the San Francisco 49ers. Oh my God, what's going to happen? Washington has no chance in any of these three games. What happened? Washington ended up going three and oh in that stretch this past season. Things change. Injuries happen. Heck, venues change. Washington, remember, beat the 49ers in Arizona, not in California. So pardon me if I am not freaking out over all of the good teams and all of the good quarterbacks that slash who Washington is set to face. Washington's home opponents will include the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Kansas City Chiefs, Seattle Seahawks, and Los Angeles Chargers. Washington's road opponents will include the Green Bay Packers, Buffalo Bills, Las Vegas Raiders, Denver Broncos, and Carolina Panthers. Yes, the list of opponents seems stiff. Yes, the list of opposing starting quarterbacks Seems especially stiff, right? I mean, you're looking at what? Tom Brady, Patrick Mahomes, Russell Wilson, Justin Herbert, Aaron Rodgers, if he's still on the Packers, Josh Allen, Derek Carr. But again, the word is seems. You know, I'm not saying the list of opponents is definitely going to be stiff. The list of opposing starting quarterbacks is definitely going to be stiff. Like, we'll see. Could be. All right. Shapes up to be, but we don't know. This is an unpredictable world in which we live. Big guest coming up on this installment of the podcast. Former Washington tight end, Logan Paulson. He is a voracious consumer of X's and those has been watching a ton of tape, has been putting on his Instagram some great breakdowns of players. You can follow Logan on the gram, Logan underscore Paulson 82. We're gonna talk all about Washington's tight end situation and quarterback situation, as well as Logan's evaluation of Samuel Cosme, the offensive tackle out of Texas, who Washington took, in the second round of the 2021 draft. High-level, high-IQ football talk with Logan Paulson coming up momentarily. And I'll give you a spoiler alert. Logan is a big fan of a lot of what Washington is doing and is a big believer in Ryan Fitzpatrick. Wait until you hear what Logan says about Fitzmagic. Again, that's coming up in just a few minutes. We had horrendous news on Tuesday. Former Washington quarterback Colt Brennan dead At the age of 37, just awful. I'm going to talk about what happened and what Colt Brennan's legacy is, especially to us as Washington fans. And I know that that may sound funny because Colt Brennan never played in an NFL regular season game, but he's actually very fondly remembered by Washington fans. I'll get into why. Also on the show, the Capitals' regular season is over. Game one against the Boston Bruins in the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs, Saturday night at 7.15 at Capital One Arena. We got an appetizer between the Caps and the Bees on Tuesday night, although the Bees treated this game like NFL teams treat their fourth preseason games. Nobody played. Plenty of key guys did play for the Caps, including Alex Ovechkin, And Nicholas Backstrom, yes, both were back. I've got some thoughts for you on the Caps as they embark on yet another postseason run. And I'll talk Nationals and Orioles, another lackluster offensive performance for the Nats on Tuesday night, this time in a loss to Bryce Harper and the Philadelphia Phillies at Nationals Park. A complete meltdown by the Orioles on Tuesday night and a loss at the New York Mets. And I will pay homage to former Nats pitcher Jordan Zimmerman, who on Tuesday announced his retirement. You can tweet me at algaldi. You can email me the algaldi podcast at yahoo.com. Got this email from Will. Uh Will says, first off, thank you for doing your podcast." You're welcome, Will. Uh love being able to listen to this first thing in the morning when walking, jogging or having a cup of coffee before the house wakes up. Yes, that's right. This podcast every weekday out by 5 a.m. for you, the early morning warrior, although like any other podcast, you don't have to listen early in the morning. You can listen whenever you darn well please. Anyway, continues, Will. I have a pet peeve that I'm hearing around town as I listen to journalists and podcasts. Uh Uh-oh. I'm assuming it's out of respect for the new regime and upcoming name change, and maybe journalists have to abide by this, but when referring to older players like Daryl Green, why call them members of the Washington football team? If Joe Jacoby finally gets into the Hall of Fame, is the expectation that he will go in as a warrior or Red Wolf? Shouldn't he go in as a member of the Redskins, even if the name is changed for the current era? I recognize I'm being a petty fan, but it bothers me when I hear the names Joe Gibbs, Daryl Green, Art Monk, Brad Johnson. Those are Redskins. I don't see why they can't always be, even if Chase Young will never be. It's a good question. It's a good point to raise. Um, I guess I would say a few things. So everyone's different with how they're handling the name thing. Um, I make it a point, and I, you know, I don't know if I bat 1,000 on this, but I certainly try to, when I refer to teams from the Washington football team's past, players from the Washington football team's past, i.e. before the name changed from Redskins, I call them Washington, and I call them Washington players, because that is accurate, right? The Redskins were the Washington Redskins. So to say Gary Clark was a Washington receiver. You're still being accurate when you say that. Gary Clark was never a Washington football team receiver, okay? Now, I mean, we're, we, are, we are really getting into semantics here. I understand that. But, like, that's kind of the way I view it. The reason, of course, that you still don't hear everyone throwing the name Redskins around all over the place is because it is no longer the name. And for some, it is an offensive name. Now, I still very much wonder if the majority of those offended are non-Native Americans, i.e. a bunch of liberal arts majors with v-neck shirts riding their Schwinn bicycles to and from campus, okay? And they're the ones dictating to everyone now what the name of the football team should be. But look, what's done is done, okay? The name changed. It's never going back to Redskins, even though I still think it is extremely debatable whether it should have ever changed. And I still wonder if George Floyd is still alive, if Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez never puts out that quote tweet of the Washington tweet of Blackout Tuesday, if the name is still in fact. Redskins. I mean the data was at worst mixed and at best very much in favor of Native Americans wanting to keep the name Redskins. Nobody likes to talk about that, but that was the case. But what's done is done, you know. It's it's a losing battle at this point. So the name has changed, and so I think you do have to respect that. I mean, if the organization itself is not calling itself Redskins and I don't think that, you know, you should feel guilty if you don't call the team Redskins anymore. But yeah, I think the way to do it is Joe Jacoby played for Washington. Daryl Green played for Washington, not the Washington football team. Speaking of the whole name thing, uh, this podcast, the Al Goldie podcast, remains top 50 in the country on Apple podcasts in the U.S. football category. But I had to point this out because of who I'm ahead of, okay? Two notorious Washington football team bashers, especially when it comes to the name. I'm one spot ahead of of Mike Florio's podcast, Fake News Florio, who hates the Washington football team and bashes it every chance he gets. And I'm two spots ahead of Peter King's podcast. Now, I don't like Peter, but Peter, as you may well know, very much became a big anti-name guy. So to Mike and Peter, I'd play for you my haha ha Clinton Dick soundbite. <laughs> there you go, Mikey and Petey. Take that. Uh, also, thank you to all of you for the continued support. Please, if you haven't already, subscribe to the podcast. Doing so costs you nothing and really helps out. Also, please give the podcast a five-star rating if you get the chance. And if you have like 30 seconds, just write like a one-sentence review. Again, costs you nothing. And again, does help out the podcast a lot. But you guys have been tremendous. Just like one of the great supporters of this podcast, John Grandland of Real Broker. You know, you have options, many options when it comes to selling your home. Let me tell you why I strongly recommend that you call John Grandland of Real Broker. If you are needing to sell your home, wanting to sell your home, even just thinking about selling your home, John Grandland, a.k.a. John G. John G.'s numbers don't lie. John Grandland's homes this year are selling for more than 40 times faster than average for more money Than average. And best of all, the homes are selling for 99.89% of the asking price. When John G puts a plan together, you can trust it and you can trust that you're gonna get paid. Here's what Kelly and Dustin had to say about John G. Quote, John and his team are incredible. They sold our house in less than two days for asking price. Need I say more? John was professional and personable throughout the entire process. When we interviewed John, We knew he was the realtor for us. Not only was he friendly and personable, but he presented us data and statistics that showed his average days on market for his clients are around a week. Very impressive, end quote. Yes, that is. Thank you very much. John Granlund, by the way, has flexible commission packages, including selling your home for free. Yes, you heard that right, for free. Some conditions apply. To learn more, to get the value of your home, just visit this website, johngsellsforfree.com. Again, zero commission. If you meet certain conditions, SellsForfree.com. or better yet, give John Grandlin a call. Tell him that Al Galdi sent you and understand that you calling John Grandlin helps out this podcast a lot. The phone number is 703-537-6747. That's 703-537-6747. 47, John Grandland is a master of local real estate. He's a big Washington football and Nats fan. Let him go to work for you and sell your home quickly and for the most money possible. John Grandland, a.k.a. John G of Real Broker. All right, very pleased to welcome to the Al Galdi podcast right now, our special guest, former Washington tight end, Logan Paulson. He came to Washington as an undrafted free agent at a UCLA in 2010 played for Washington for five seasons 2010 through 2014 also played for the Chicago Bears San Francisco 49ers and Atlanta Falcons he's now an analyst including doing some really good breakdowns of players on his Instagram which is Logan underscore Paulson 82 Logan it's great to talk to you man how are you
2: I'm great man thanks for having me on
3: appreciate you coming on so I did a radio show with Chris Cooley for a few years and he told me that you were one of the healthiest eaters he ever played with? Oh, are you still eating clean, or have you relaxed on the diet? No,
2: I mean, still, so, uh, still pretty clean. I guess uh, old habits die hard. You know what I mean? Like you do something for ten years, it's hard to just drop it.
3: Yeah, well, I guess compared to <laughs> Cooley, everyone eats clean. So you know, there's, 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 there's kind of that part of things too. Uh, all right, so I want to get your takes on a bunch of stuff going on with Washington, but especially tight end. It's been an interesting off season for Washington at tight end. What do you make of the mix that Washington now has at tight end? I mean obviously we know Logan Thomas is the guy, but kind of this jettisoning of the depth beyond Logan for last season, and it looks like Washington has legitimate faith in two guys who have yet to prove themselves at the NFL level, but certainly have talent in John Bates and Samis Reyes. Do you like what Washington has done at tight end?
2: I do. I think they've done a really nice job of, of filling in the gaps of the of the group. I think Logan Thomas had an outstanding year last year, but I think he, it you know, one of the things that characterizes a good tight end room is having a well rounded kind of variety of different types of players. You get a nice kind of explosive potential type player with Sammy Reyes, a guy who's big, strong, and fast, he can do a lot of things. Um, from a physical standpoint, obviously he has a tremendous learning curve ahead of him. But you know, having met with him, having talked to him, having worked out with him, he has all the kind of right uh, physical makeup, the right mental makeup. I have a ton of confidence that he can get that done. Smart kid, you know, learns multiple languages, econ major, so the uh, the intellectual part of the game, I don't think it's going to be as challenging as uh, it might seem on the surface. I think the technical stuff is going to take some time to kind of develop. I think the kid's got a ton of potential. And then uh, Bates, I think is. A really interesting fit I think he you know he during the pre-draft process he's a guy that I didn't have uh on my list even you know I go to all these different websites and I kind of go down the list and I say okay these are the top 10 kind of on average or the mean top 10 and he was not in that list so when they drafted him I thought man they they're probably reaching a little bit but once I watched his tape once I went through a couple games I saw the value as, you know with the fourth round pick there I think he's a guy who's Very big. He can grow into his frame a little bit. He can add probably 10 or 15 pounds. He's probably a true blocking Y, which is something that they've lacked here in Washington for a couple years now. And it's a feature in this Scott Turner offense that must be addressed. It's, you know, um, he's, they've always had a guy like that in this system. A guy that can kind of get down and dirty with the defensive ends, do some pass protection. He's got the length. He's got the technical acumen. Like it shows up really nice on tape. His ability to kind of roll his hips, get under guys, use his hands well. And then the, the other thing I love about about his games, he's not bad in the pass game. He's a nice, natural athlete. He sees the ball well to his hands. He's not going to kill anybody with his, his, you know, speed measurements. But I think in terms of, like, attacking the seam, kind of nice fluid hips, good adjustment in the ball in the air, no stiffness when the ball's in the air, if that makes sense. And those are things you got to love about a guy who can kind of mix it up in line because it means they can't. The other teams, opposing teams, can't totally fixate on him as a run-blocking player.
3: Right. And that obviously would be the concern. Bates over 46 career games at Boise State, just 47 receptions. But that doesn't mean that he can't catch passes. ESPN's Todd McShay said that Bates catches balls as well as any tight end in the 2021 draft class, not named Kyle Pitt. So what do you think with Bates? He could be like a good, what, red zone target, that kind of a thing?
2: Yeah, I do. I, th- I what, what, what I think he really adds value is he plays special teams. That's huge. And he bl- brings a physical element, right? Everyone talks about um, the running game for the Washington football team and how that needs to improve. And one of the features that improves that almost immediately is getting a, blo- a blocking tight end or a tight end who understands the run game and can contribute in that, in that way. And I know fans might have wanted something sexier, you know, like a pass-catching tight end. The kid out of Miami was on everybody's boards. But I, I know that this – This isn't, like, the most glamorous thing, but it does add immediate value to this Washington football team, And it fills something that they didn't have before, which is so important in the draft.
3: So, Samis Reyes, you have such a unique perspective on him because, like you said, you've worked out with him. This is such a different deal. I mean, a guy who's never played football at any meaningful level. He's a converted basketball player, physical freak, but beyond that, I mean, we really have no idea what he can be. What's going to go into this transition? How realistic is Samis Reyes being a meaningful contributor to Washington in 2021?
2: You know, I think it's probably more realistic with him than with other players, simply because there is a there's an immediate path to him seeing the field with the Washington football team. In other situations, it's obvious that the guy's going to have to sit for a couple of years. Here, I mean, he's probably the number three at at a minimum, right? He might even be the number two, depending on the situation. So they're expecting him to play. They're expecting him to get on the field. And I think it's something that he can do. I think it really depends. A huge factor, this is the coaching staff and how they choose to utilize him. Like One of the things I've seen in the past with guys making position switches is is how do you kind of you know, instead of like kind of parcel out what you're going to be doing, instead of get letting them take everything like drinking out of a fire hose, you give them little sips, get them on the field for you know ten plays here, fifteen plays there, stuff that they feel comfortable with, stuff that you as a coordinator or you as a as a, as a staff feel comfortable with them doing. So I think that's going to be super critical to watch. Where is his role? How are they going to utilize him? And can he kind of maximize those opportunities? And I personally think he'll be able to. But um, I think the guy who's going to be the bigger impact of the two right away is Bates, just because he plays something so different than Logan Thomas. What
3: do you think Reyes' potential is as a blocker?
2: So I think, like you said, he's a physical freak, right? He's huge. He's big. He's strong. He's explosive through his hips. Those are all things you need in the run game. I do think just from experience, I think blocking takes a lot of time to learn so i think it's very akin to like a martial art right you know like how to throw a punch how to throw a kick how to position your body in a specific way and that is something that just takes time on task and a ton of repetition and that's something he doesn't have a lot of he doesn't have a lot of time to do right because he's brand new to the position. I think, you know, like with um, route running, right, you can run a thousand routes, and you're not going to beat up your body too bad. You can see a couple balls come out of different people's hands, and you feel like, you know, there's some nuance there, but it's not quite the same. So I think just from a technical standpoint, his impact's going to be you're going to be seen more quickly in the passing game. I think he will be able to run block. I think his frame dictates that because athleticism takes that. I just think of the two skill sets, it just takes a little bit longer to figure out.
3: Talking Washington football team with former Washington tight end Logan Paulson, who's been doing some great breakdowns on his Instagram. You can follow him there, Logan underscore Paulson 82. So if Reyes makes a successful transition, he's obviously not the first guy to go from basketball to playing tight end in football. What is it about basketball players that makes it conducive to them becoming tight ends in football?
2: Well, I think the first thing is that they're just big bodies, right? You know, some of the most important characteristics of playing football in the NFL are your, your height, your length, your arm length, your speed, and your explosiveness, right? And then kind of a third or fourth element there is your ability to track the football, especially playing tight end. And basketball players, they get a ton of reps at that, right? They get a ton of reps of catching the, catching the basketball, handling the basketball, moving in space, and all of those traits really transition nicely to the nfl level so if you get a guy who's a big frame right like sam east or darren fells or antonio gates or um you know the kid in uh new orleans like all of those guys they're big frames and they're physical frames and i think when you see a guy like that as a, as a talent a you where you say well all those other features are there all those kind of height weight speed measurements are there and do they have the mentality to make the transition and i think You know, that's a big if, but I think talking with Sam East, I think he does have those characteristics, and I think um, he's going to be a heck of a football player one day. It's just going to take some time.
3: Washington, we know, had a lot of cap room, still has a lot of cap room. Were you at all surprised that Washington didn't try to make a bigger splash at tight end this offseason, say with a Hunter Henry or a Jono Smith?
2: You know, I, I think uh, Jonu is one of my favorite young tight ends in the NFL, to be quite honest. And I wouldn't have paid them what they what he was asking for. I think I'm glad that he got that money. I think the market dictated that, obviously. But I don't think I think you got to look to the future, right? At some point, they're going to need to make a big splash of quarterback here, pay somebody a lot of money. And I just don't think I, I just this is I played tight end. I understand the value of it, unless you're you know George Kittle, Travis Kelsey, um, Darren Waller, maybe Kyle Pitts. Like, you don't deserve that huge $15 million paycheck, in my opinion. You're more of a role player within the office. And I, I know John is a very – like I said, he's one of my favorite players in the NFL. But I just think it, it's never worth the price tag, especially – like, look at this draft. They were able to get a nice, solid player in the fourth round. Logan Thomas kind of bargained mid shopping last year. And then Sammy's. and I think you now have a nice – fairly flushed out uh, tight end room. Even though it's not a known commodity, you didn't have to break the bank. You were able to spend that money elsewhere. So I think that that's so important to keep in mind. And um, I know a lot of people, a lot of fans are like, oh, we should have gone out and, and got a better tight end or a better position or whatever it was. But I do think that there's, there's more value and more immediate impact at other positions on the roster. So
3: it's interesting hearing you list some of the great tight ends in the NFL right now. One of the more fascinating aspects of the tight end position is that so many of the good tight ends are non-first round picks. Travis Kelsey, third rounder, George Kittle, fifth rounder, Darren Waller, sixth rounder. Why do you think it is that so many high level tight ends are non-first round picks?
2: Well, I think if you look at those guys particularly you know Darren Waller's making a position switch from wide receiver, played at Georgia Tech, not getting a ton of targets. George Kittle had an extensive injury injury history. But if you looked at those height length, explosive metrics, it was all there for him. And then Kelsey was a guy I remember talking with Sean McBay and that was his number one tight end of the year that he came out, even though he went in the third. So I think there was some uh, maybe some character issues. He went to a smaller school, Cincinnati. Some of those things kinda of pushed down the draft board and You know, there are stories of all these guys in the later rounds not doing well, but I do think that, you know, if those kind of explosive qualities are there, the mentality's there, I think, yeah, it makes total sense that a guy like that would have tremendous value in later rounds.
3: All right, getting away from tight end, I'm anxious to hear your thoughts on Washington's second-round pick in the 2021 draft, Samuel Cosme, the offensive tackle, out of Texas. You played with one of the more athletic offensive tackles we'll ever see in Trent Williams. Cosme himself is an athletic freak. Do you think Cosme can become a staple for Washington at left tackle?
2: So, when I was doing my draft evaluation, I watched so many offensive linemen. Like, I watched probably close to 35 offensive linemen. And he was one of the few, outside of those top two guys, A Sewell and uh, Rashawn Slater, that I thought had the athletic ability to play left tackle in the NFL. And so, you know, people say, why is it so important that the guy is a good athlete to play left tackle? Obviously, most quarterbacks are right-handed. They can see the rush better to their right. He's going to have to bank on that left tackle really holding down that that responsibility of protecting the quarterback's blind side because he can't react to the rush as well from, from a space he can't see. So he was one of the guys who I thought, man, you know, technically he's a little rough. Like, he leans a little bit on his punch. He has kind of a lazy pass set with his feet. He kind of does like this weird back pedal as opposed to like a true kick slide, which – you know, I think speaks to his athleticism that I mean, he's kind of able to get away with kind of a deficient pass set for four years of college football. And it's not like he only played 500 snaps. He played 2,500 snaps at right and left tackle. Guy, you see his, his, his tremendous athleticism in the run game. He's got, like I said, some technical issues. But in terms of that athleticism, that's something that, in my opinion, projects to a guy who could be a pro bowl left tackle for 10 years in the NFL if he gets it figured out from a technique standpoint.
3: In your experience, how realistic is it to take someone with bad technique and turn that someone into a player with good technique?
2: Well, I think it just depends on the guy and from what I've t- I talked to a whole bunch of different guys, all my buddies who're offensive line coaches in the NFL, and they said he interviewed outstanding, right? All the kind of mental Duty, the importance of the position, the importance of the game in his life, right? All those things are really important and really high uh, marks for him in terms of the interview process. And so I think you kind of say, here's a guy who football is important to him and he wants to be great. He's... Um, He's kind of a a gym rat, so to speak. He's gonna, he's gonna invest time. He makes you feel good about the time he's gonna spend on tasks. And I think that's important, right? Making you as a staff feel comfortable that, hey, he, we can coach him up and he will be able to listen and he's gonna develop because he does some amazing things with his footwork and his hands. You're just like, wow, like, there's maybe three people in the world who could do that. And then he'll have, he'll have a bad miss. He'll have a bad loss or whatever. But I think those the upside with him is so interesting. Like Everyone talks about Jamin, Jamin Davis and how his upside – but to me, Cosme's the guy that I am watching acutely because he is the guy that I think could be a game-changer for this Washington football team organization.
4: Wow,
3: that's great <laughs> to hear. Do want to get your take on the quarterback situation. If Ryan Fitzpatrick is Washington's starter this coming season – do you see him as a significant upgrade over what Washington had at quarterback last season?
2: Yeah, I think a lot of fans are not going to want to hear this, but I think he's, he's significantly better. I'd say, you know, if I had to put a percentage on it, I think he's 30 to 35, maybe 40% better than what the Washington football team had last year. I think he's a top 18 quarterback in the NFL. I think when he's playing well, which he has shown over the last two seasons, a kind of a steady improvement from what he was before, this guy, you know, this, this, this tragic character, I think he's going to, I just think he is a, he's a true starting NFL quarterback. Who can make plays at the position, and that's unfortunately not something the Washington football team had last year. No offense to Alex Smith, the guy had a tremendous career, tremendous comeback story, but he just was not playing the position physically at a high level. Mentally, obviously everything was there, making great decisions with the football, but now you have a guy who can push the ball downfield, really make the field feel like it's 100 yards long, which is an exciting proposition given the athletic talent that the Washington football team has accumulated over the last, you know, over the last offseason.
3: No doubt. You watch a ton of tape when you look at Taylor Heineke and Kyle Allen. What do you think are the realistic ceilings for those guys?
2: So it's funny. Everyone asks me about Taylor Heineke all the time. I think obviously tremendous playoff performance, but I was in Atlanta and I got to see his first ever professional start, and it was nothing short of a car crash, you know. And I think he would probably tell you the same thing: through three interceptions, lots of big play passes, broke his arm, the whole thing, right? So I think. He does have some box, he does have some gamesmanship to him. I think he's very, very talented. I think there's a lot of potential still to be seen there. But I also think people haven't seen kind of the negative sides of his game, right? They're fresh off this kind of otherworldly playoff performance. And I think that is definitely in his repertoire and I think that's something he could be, but I I I think that's somewhat unfair and somewhat unrealistic given his small sample size of the playing experience. And Kyle Allen, I think Kyle Allen again is very, very talented, but again, his, his track record his you know, if, if you're looking at his history as an NFL player, there's some very good stuff and there's some very not so good stuff. And so the really good ones are, are the ones who are able to consistently be at a high level. I'm not saying you can never get there. And I think that's why they're both still on the team is because of this potential for their ability to grow and to become, you know, potentially um, starting quarterbacks in the NFL. But I don't think that's this year. And it might not even be the following year. It might be two or three years down the road. And that's something I don't think you want to bank on. And that's why I think they made an excellent decision bringing uh, Fitzpatrick up.
3: Did you think that Washington should have traded up for Justin Fields or Mac Jones or taken one of the second-tier quarterbacks? Or were you fine with Washington not taking a quarterback in the 2021 draft?
2: So, yeah, I mean, I was a big uh, Kyle Trask fan. I thought he was the guy who had a ton of potential later in rounds. But what that being said, I do, I'm okay with them not going quarterback because I think they made the decision with Fitzpatrick. I think that, I know a lot of fans think that's kind of boring and short-sighted, but they have the potential now to win the division and win some playoff games with him at the helm, and I'm not exaggerating with that evaluation. He is that good right now, or over the last two seasons, let's just say. So I think um, I'm okay with that. I think ideally, you know, people want to trade up, but you have to love that guy, you know, and if you talk to scouts around the NFL, which I've done, you know, Fields was all over the place in terms of evaluation some people loved him some people liked him better than, than Lawrence some people thought he was like a mid mid to late round pick you know what I mean and so I don't know how the Washington football team felt about him but unless you're 100 percent sure it doesn't warrant trading up just because he's available this year right now you have to think long term there will be quarterbacks available next year maybe the fifth one of that group is significantly better than Fields it's hard to imagine that now but I do think that's something that can get done
3: yeah, the way you just put it, that's exactly how I've been putting it on the podcast. There's a difference between liking someone and loving someone. There are things right. to like about all these quarterbacks, but if you don't love them, to give up the capital to get these guys, I mean, all these trade-ups right. for quarterbacks, they're not working. Like, we're seeing this over yes. and over and over again.
2: And I think you bring up a great point there. Just because the quarterback is his value as the first-round pick does not mean he's going to succeed. Look at Jared Goff, look at Carson Wentz, look at this myriad of quarterbacks of the last five to six years who have not pound out in being first-round picks. Now that Sam Darnold's another one, that's not entirely their fault. That's a little bit situation, but that's always important to remember, right? Just because they're the, the best of this year's crop does not be, mean that they're going to be legit NFL starters.
3: It's so true. And even your guy, Sean McVay, Jared Goff helped McVay get to a Super Bowl, and McVay still wanted to part ways with Goff. I mean, what does that say? I appreciate your time. I got one more for you. I know you've probably been asked about this like a thousand times. I'll make it a thousand one, but maybe the most famous catch of your career, October, 2012, 27, 23 loss at the Giants. One of the most spectacular plays of RG3's rookie season, the play right before the two minute warning in the fourth quarter, a fourth and 10, 19 yard completion to you on a play on which Robert looked dead to rights. What do you remember about that play?
2: Yeah, everyone asks me about that all the time and it's one of the highlights of my career. So I'm glad I'm happy to talk about it but really I was just kind of a passenger on that play like I was running a clear route and I wasn't supposed to get the ball and then Robert you know in that tremendous uh 2012 year with all that athleticism all that promise just made magic happen and I literally was wide open and all I remember thinking when the ball was in the air I was like and he just did all that work. Don't drop this ball. You know what I mean? Because like he that the, the reason people remember the play is because all the special stuff that he did. And I just made the catch. So really, that's Robert's play. And I appreciate you bringing it up. But you know, he gets all the credit for that one.
3: Well, you, you deserve some of it too, man. Listen, I've really enjoyed your breakdowns. I appreciate you coming on the podcast so much, and hopefully, we can do this again at some point. All the best to you, Logan.
2: Yeah, man. Thanks so much. I really appreciate the opportunity. Uh, it was nice talking to you.
3: All right, good insight there from Logan Paulson. Knows his stuff, just like one of the great supporters of this podcast, Dr. George Verghese, medical director for the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. Dr. George Verghese, he is a board-certified dermatologist and Mohs surgeon. The Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland diagnoses and treats a broad range of acute and chronic skin conditions, including skin cancer. And specific to that, Dr. George Verghese and his institute offer something that's really a game changer, superficial radiation therapy, or SRT. SRT is an alternative to surgical procedures for basal cell and squamous cell skin cancers. SRT is safe, effective, and non-surgical. Having skin cancer doesn't mean having to have surgery and the downtime and side effects, cosmetic and otherwise, that come with surgery. You have options. SRT is an option. And Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offer the option of SRT, unlike many other dermatology practices in the area. And SRT is covered by most insurances. To find out more, call 301-396-3401. Make sure you tell them that Al Galdi sent you that. Phone number again, 301-396-3401. Or visit AtlanticSkin.com. That's mid-AtlanticSkin.com. Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland, nationally recognized for treating skin cancer across the Mid-Atlantic region. All right, well, we had awful news on Tuesday. The news that former Washington quarterback Colt Brennan had died early that morning. He was just 37 years old. Just an absolute tragedy. And the circumstances of Colt's death are really sad. Uh, So his dad, Terry Brennan, spoke to multiple media outlets, said that Colt died at a hospital in California, get this, just hours after being turned away from a detox program due to it not having any available beds. I mean, my God, you talk about like a what if. Just incredible. Just gut-wrenching to read that on Tuesday. Uh, Terry Brennan told ESPN that paramedics on Monday had been called to a hotel room in which Colt had been with other people. Terry Brennan said that his son had ingested something laced with fentanyl and never regained consciousness. Uh Fentanyl, I mean, I think everyone knows this by now, how damaging it has been to this country and this world. And apparently claiming another victim here in Colt Brennan. Terry Brennan also spoke to the Associated Press said that Colt had been living at an addiction treatment center in Costa Mesa, California, had been a big user of marijuana. If you have followed Colt Brennan since he was with Washington, you know Colt has had a number of personal issues. First of all, going back years. So Colt, before he was at Hawaii, was at multiple other schools, including Colorado. He was actually a walk-on at Colorado, but he was dismissed from the team in 2004 following an incident that led to him being convicted of burglary and trespassing. He also had a guilty verdict for unlawful sexual contact, but that was eventually vacated. Uh, Colt was never the same after in 2010 being the passenger in a serious car crash that included him suffering broken ribs, a broken collarbone, and most seriously, traumatic brain injury. And Colt had documented issues with at least alcohol and maybe other things Over the years, was arrested numerous times over the years, including several times within the previous 18 months. December 2019, Colt was arrested in Hawaii for driving under the influence, driving without insurance and leaving the scene of an accident. August 2020, Colt was arrested in Hawaii for trespassing at a hotel after allegedly causing a disturbance and refusing to leave. And November 2020, Colt was arrested in Hawaii after banging on a housemaid's door with a chair. When Colt entered the room, he fell on the roommate, causing both to fall on the floor. Colt was arrested for disorderly conduct. So there were definite issues with Colt, you know, substance issues, mental health issues, the extent to which the traumatic brain injury damaged Colt. I mean, it's pretty serious. I think that's pretty obvious at this point. And I mean, horrendously, he ends up dying on Tuesday morning. At the age of 37. For our purposes, talking sports here on this podcast, uh, Colt Brennan should be remembered as a player for the Washington football team for actually multiple reasons. And, it, and it's kind of odd because Colt Brennan never played in a regular season game for Washington or any other NFL team. And yet the moment you hear that name, Colt Brennan, if you're a Washington football team fan like me, you instantly know who you're thinking of, right? Like Colt Brennan became actually a pretty popular and well known name here years ago. So Washington took Colt in the sixth round of the 2008 NFL draft out of Hawaii. And I would say that that's reason number one for Colt Brennan to be remembered as a player for Washington. He was a part of one of the worst draft classes in Washington and really NFL history. And this isn't so much a shot at Colt because it's a sixth round pick. I mean, you know, who knows what's going to end up happening, but that is a very famous draft class. As you likely know, it was a 10 player draft class it was the penultimate draft class for our pal Vinny Serrato as a part of the Washington organization.
4: For the fans.
3: Yes, Vinny, for the fans, exactly. And the extent to which this draft class was a flop really can't be overstated. You had not one, not two, but three failed second round picks. This was the start of the curse of the second round pick for Washington, this 2008 draft, in which Washington went 0 for 3 with three second round picks. Pick number one in the second round for Washington, Michigan State receiver, Devin Thomas. Pick number two for Washington in the second round, USC tight end, Fred Davis. Pick number three for Washington in the second round, Oklahoma receiver, Malcolm Kelly. But here are the kickers, okay? You, I mean, like, it's bad enough when you go, Devin Thomas, Fred Davis, Malcolm Kelly. Consider this. Washington took Davis with the number 48 overall pick, took Malcolm Kelly with the number 51 overall pick. Are you aware? of who was selected at pick number 49 and then who was selected at pick 50. Here you go. The Philadelphia Eagles took receiver Deshaun Jackson with the number 49 overall pick in that 2008 draft and the Arizona Cardinals took edge rusher Calais Campbell with the number 50 overall pick in the 2008 draft. So while Vinny was whiffing on Davis and then Kelly over picks 48 and 51, the Eagles took Deshaun at 49, the Cardinals took Campbell at 50. Two studs for years to come go in between. Two swings and misses for our team in that second round in the 2008 draft. Also in that 28 draft class for Washington, the selection of a punter. Washington had three six-round picks in that draft, spent the first of the three six-round picks on a punter, Durant Brooks of Georgia Tech. It would be bad enough if Durant Brooks ended up being a good punter for Washington, because you can find good punters on the cheap, in free agency, off the waiver wire all the time. But Durant Brooks ended up punting for Washington for six games in the 2008 regular season, then was gone and never punted in an NFL regular season game again. You spent a six-round pick on a punter who punted in six games for you and then was never heard from again in terms of punting in an NFL regular season game. This is part of why I did not like Washington in this year's draft, spending a six-round pick on a long snapper, Cameron Cheeseman of Michigan. And I know, Ron Rivera is not Vinny Serrato. I'm not trying to even say the two are in the same ballpark. But you can find these special team specialists on the cheap, all the time. Don't waste draft choices on special team specialists, okay? Good ones can be found, again, on the cheap and free agency, off the waiver wire, constantly. And then what's also funny about the 2008 Washington draft class is that you could argue the two best picks were the two last picks. Washington had two seventh round picks in that draft, took the edge rusher, Rob Jackson, and took the safety, Chris Horton. And while not a guy was, you know, an All-Pro or anything like that, Rob Jackson did give Washington some decent seasons, including some good play in that 2012 NFC East winning season. Remember, he had that huge pick in the Week 17 win over the Dallas Cowboys at FedEx Field on Sunday Night Football to clinch the NFC East. And Chris Horton, very early in his career, actually had some interceptions. For a while, it was like on fire when it came to generating picks. Washington. So that to me is reason number one to remember Colt Brennan as a player for Washington. He was a part of the infamous 2008 Washington draft class. Second reason that Colt Brennan should be remembered as a player for Washington. So Colt was with Washington for actually two seasons, 2008, 2009. Like I said, never did play in a regular season game in his NFL career, but he was a preseason legend for Washington. And it's, it's tongue in cheek, right? Because Washington in its history has had a number of these guys. August heroes, you know, summer heroes who are basically never heard from again. Colt Brennan is kind of the epitome of this. Colt Brennan really over two preseasons stood out as a Washington quarterback. The Hall of Fame game in 2008, August 3rd of that year, 30-16 win over the Indianapolis Colts in Canton, Ohio. Remember 2008 was the year in which both Daryl Green and Art Monk got enshrined in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Colt in that Hall of Fame game, 9 of 10 for 123 yards, two touchdowns, and no interceptions. And another Washington preseason legend, the running back, Marcus Mason, the pride of Georgetown Prep High School, like yours truly, in Rockville, uh, he in that game had 18 carries for 98 yards. See, that was one of the funny things about Cole Brennan and him becoming this preseason legend. He was part of Washington over a two preseason stretch in which you had a bunch of eventual preseason legends. Colt Brennan, Marcus Mason, Chase Daniel, Marco Mitchell, whose name will come up in just a bit. Later that 2008 preseason, August 16th, 13-10 win at the New York Jets. Colt in that game, 4-5 for 79 yards and a touchdown. Another good game for Marcus Mason, then nine carries, 55 yards. And then the next preseason, 2009, August 28th, a 27-24 loss to the New England Patriots at FedEx Field. Colton, that game actually didn't do that well. 6-12, 81 yards, interception, got sacked four times, but he had a 33-yard touchdown pass to an aforementioned other Washington preseason legend, the receiver, Marco Mitchell, with 10 seconds left in the third quarter. If you're a hardcore Washington fan, you remember these names. Colt Brennan, Marcus Mason, Chase Daniel, Marco Mitchell. Four preseason legends over two preseasons, 2008-2009. And they essentially capture perfectly this phenomenon that is the Washington August hero, the Washington preseason hero. We've dealt with it many times over the years. We certainly dealt with it with Colt Brennan. He became a very popular figure, in part because he was a quarterback, he was a backup quarterback, he was a gunslinger, but also because he did that thing when hope springs eternal in the preseason of looking good and making people think, hey, maybe this guy should be our QB1. Of course, it wasn't that simple when it came to the position. Remember, Jason Campbell was the starting quarterback at the time, and he was not great. He was not a franchise quarterback, but he was better than Colt Brennan. Third reason that Colt Brennan should be remembered as a player for Washington. Remember this, this gets forgotten. How did Washington get rid of Colt? Do you remember? Washington in August, 2010 traded Colt Brennan to the Baltimore Ravens for another quarterback, John Beck. Yes, Colt Brennan is how Washington got John Beck. Brennan for Beck. Brennan to Baltimore for Beck. Uh, Colt was quickly cut by the Ravens and then signed with but was soon also cut by the Oakland Raiders. We know what happened with John Beck, the debacle that ended up being the 2011 season in which he and Rex Grossman split time at quarterback for Washington but Beck was with Washington in 2010 and Beck became kind of a cult hero as that season went on because you had the quarterback turmoil that year with Donovan McNabb and then Rex Grossman and you go into 2011 and it's like, well, what are they going to do? Well, hey, they seem to like this John Beck guy. Hmm, Maybe there's something to John Beck. Boy, the Shanahan's really seem to have a thing for John Beck and things didn't go so well, including that infamous shutout loss against the Buffalo Bills in Toronto in which Beck was sacked 10 times. And remember who the Bills starting quarterback was in that game. Yes, Ryan Fitzpatrick. Uh, Colt Brennan signed deals with a bunch of teams in a bunch of leagues after his NFL career. Signed with the Hartford Colonials of the United Football League in June 2011. Signed with the Saskatchewan Rough Riders of the Canadian Football League in February 2012. Signed with the Los Angeles Kiss of the Arena Football League in October 2013. But Colt did not last long with any of those teams. Or leagues. And he kind of faded away. Again, that car crash in 2010 really wrecked him. You know, no pun intended there. It, it was a brutal experience to go through and it forever affected him. Terry Brennan, Colt's father, talked about that in the aftermath of Colt's death. The other thing too with Colt is, of course, he is one of the most prolific collegiate quarterbacks ever. Uh, Colt put up incredible numbers at Hawaii from 2005 to 2007. Hawaii had as its head coach June Jones, one of the pioneers of the run and shoot offense, which is a thing in the NFL. In the late eighties, early nineties, and in a lot of ways was ahead of its time. It was a pass happy offense that the NFL just wasn't ready for back then. I think if you dropped the run and shoot into today's game, you'd see a much different view of it. You'd see a lot more acceptance of it. You know, people used to poo poo the run and shoot, used to call it the chuck and duck. In today's pass happy environment, the run and shoot, people would be all over it. And actually, in a lot of ways, the run and shoot lives on in today's NFL because a lot of the concepts are adopted by current NFL teams. But anyway, Colt is number one. Among qualified quarterbacks, so those with at least 875 career pass attempts, in FBS history, in career completion percentage, at 70.4. Remember, Colt Brennan is doing this 2005 through 2007. This is not today's college football in which a quarterback having a completion percentage of 70 is really good, but also not unheard of. I mean, Dwayne Haskins had a completion percentage of 70 in his loan season as Ohio State starter in 2018. Colt Brennan for his career, 05 through 07, completion percentage of 70.4, number one in FBS history among qualified quarterbacks. Do you know who's number two? Another Colt who used to play for Washington, Colt McCoy. He's number two at 70.3. And then interestingly, Case Keenum is number six in FBS history in career completion percentage among qualified quarterbacks at 69.4. We may not do quarterbacks well at the NFL level with our Washington football team, but when it comes to getting guys who did well in college, we're all about that, right? Colt Brennan, Colt McCoy, Case Keenum, etc. Colt Brennan also is tied for first in FBS history in career 4,000-yard passing seasons with three and career 400-yard passing games with 20. Colt Brennan in 2006 had one of the most jaw-dropping seasons that any college quarterback has ever had. 14 games, 58 touchdown passes versus 12 interceptions, 9.93 yards per pass attempt, 72.6 completion percentage. I mean, if, if you remember when Colt Brennan and June Jones had Hawaii rolling, right? Hawaii would play these super late night, early morning games, and the scores would always be insane. They would be like basketball scores. Again, Hawaii was ahead of its time in a lot of ways because now in college football, you see a lot in the way of basketball scores. But like back then, it wasn't as much. And I say back then, this is like 15 years ago. It's not like 50 years ago, but it was different. Football really has evolved a lot, even in just the last decade and a half. And that's why to me, like June Jones, guys like him deserve a lot of credit. Colt Brennan, I believe, deserves a lot of credit. And he had a monster season in 2006. I mean, those were video game numbers that Colt Brennan put up in 2006 for Hawaii. Brennan finished sixth in the Heisman Trophy voting in 2006, and then actually third in the Heisman Trophy voting in 2007. So very sad. There's no way around it. And I guess if there are any good things to come from his death, I mean, first of all, it does bring more awareness to fentanyl and the problem this country has, our world has, with drug use But also from purely a sports standpoint, Colt Brennan's death does make you appreciate the career this guy had in college. Colt Brennan is one of the most productive and prolific quarterbacks in the history of college football. And that should not be forgotten. Rest in peace. So the Capitals regular season finally, mercifully, is over. And I say that not because the Caps had a bad regular season. They did not. They had a very good regular season. Actually finished tied with the Pittsburgh Penguins for first in the East Division at 77 points, though the Pens had the tiebreaker. But it was time for the regular season to end. The same opponents over and over and over again as teams played nothing but intra-division games in this 56-game NHL regular season. The recent out-of-control brawls in those games at the New York Rangers, the injuries and the absences that the Caps have had to deal with this season. You could argue that now is actually a bad time for the Stanley Cup playoffs for the Cavs because of the recent injuries and now Evgeny Kuznetsov and Ilya Samsonov being out again due to COVID-19 protocols. But I know for me as a lifelong Cavs fan, I am ready for the postseason. I'm guessing that a lot of you are ready for the postseason. And it was interesting, head coach Peter Laviolette during his virtual post game press conference on Tuesday night made it clear that he and his team are ready to be playing Postseason game. So the Caps did end their regular season with a win, a 2 1 win over the team that the Caps are about to face in the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs, the Boston Bruins. The Caps concluding a 36 15 and 5 regular season with this victory on Tuesday night. The game meant absolutely nothing from a standing standpoint. But how about the end of the game? Michael Roffle, the game winning even strength goal from an incredible near zero angle shot with three seconds left in the third period. Nobody at the game or watching the game was rooting for overtime. I can promise you that. And Raffle was the hero. Again, near zero angle shot. I'm still not sure how that puck made it through, but it did. Capitals avoid the overtime, get the victory. 2 won the final over the Bruins at Capital One Arena. Now, the game, like I said, meant nothing. The game is in no way a reflection of what to anticipate come the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs, the Bruins rested like everyone. The Bruins rested pretty much all of the team's regulars, okay? The head coach for the Bruins, the former Capitals head coach, Bruce, aka Butch Cassidy, basically treated this game, like I said earlier, like an NFL head coach treats the fourth preseason game. Nobody of consequence, for the most part, played in the game. The Capitals, conversely, did play a bunch of key guys. Laviolette has been adamant about this, that if you're healthy, you're going to keep playing. We'll see if that strategy pays off. But there was some risk taken by the Caps in playing some key guys and having some guys return from injury. But you have to be fair to Lobulette, It may have been that the players wanted to return from injury, especially Alex Ovechkin. That's certainly the way it was framed after the game that Ovi decided, yeah, I want to get my legs underneath me, get out there and play for the first time in a while. Alex Ovechkin was back on Tuesday night, played for just the second time in nine games, and played well. Uh, Ovi played for exactly 19 minutes and 20 shifts, totaled a game high nine shot attempts, and generated four hits. Ovi, during his virtual post-game press conference, quote, right now, I'm 100%. I didn't feel any soreness. I feel comfortable. That's the most important thing. This time of year, you have to be smart, and you have to think about the future, not only regular season, and quote. It's quite possible he's lying, and he's not 100%. But that's what Ovechkin did say after the game. And, you know, there's no reason to think that he's not 100%. Like I said, he did look good on Tuesday night. Ovechkin had not played in seven of the previous eight games due to a lower body injury coming into the game. Remember what happened? Ovi, in the 6-3 win at the New York Rangers on May 3rd, returned from a four-game absence that was caused by that lower body injury that was suffered in a one nothing shootout win at the New York Islanders on April 22nd. But Ovi, in that game at the Rangers on May 3rd, played for just one shift before leaving the game as the previous injury was aggravated. That was disturbing when that happened. That kind of got buried with all the John Carlson stuff with the Rangers. But thankfully, Ovechkin seemed to do well on Tuesday night. Again, I'll stress that word, seem, because we don't know. I mean, hockey injuries are forever cloaked in secrecy, and you never know the truth until long after the truth matters. But for now, it looks like Ovechkin skated, did well, played well, and it's going to be good to go come game one against the Bruins Saturday night at Capital One Arena, a 715 start. Also, Nicholas Backstrom was back for the Capitals on Tuesday night. He returned from a one game absence caused by a lower body injury. Now, the Capitals do remain without multiple key players. Defenseman John Carlson did not play on Tuesday night, and missed the second consecutive game due to a lower body injury. T.J. Oshie did not play on Tuesday night due to a lower body injury that was suffered in the Caps' previous game, the 2-1 overtime win over the Philadelphia Flyers at Capital One Arena on Saturday night. And the Caps do remain without two of their key Russians, Evgeny Kuznetsov and goaltender Ilya Samsonov. Each guy missing a fifth consecutive game on Tuesday night. Each did not play in the first game of that stretch due to team disciplinary reasons as the players were late to a team function. But each guy since then has been out due to COVID-19 protocols. This is a big deal. We have no idea if Kuznetsov is going to be good to go for game one against the Bruins, and we have no idea if Samsonov is going to be good to go for game one against the Bruins. Now, maybe Samsonov wouldn't be starting anyway, but you still would like to have him available. I mean, Craig Anderson, in his age 39 season, he of the two starts this regular season, could end up being your number two goaltender going into the playoffs. Now, Vitek Vanacek did look good on Tuesday night. Again, you were facing like a JV team in the Boston Bruins. You were facing an AHL team in the Boston Bruins. So I'm not putting a ton of stock in this, but it was nice to see Vitek play well. He stopped 25 of the 26 shots on goal that he faced. And I love this about the Caps' regular season finale. Again, a game that meant nothing, absolutely nothing from a standing standpoint. Tom Wilson still got into it with someone. Tom Wilson and Trent Frederick of the Bruins have history. The two of them got into it. Each got a 10-minute misconduct penalty, 149 into the third period. Only our guy Tom Wilson, could get a 10-minute misconduct, 149 into the third period of a completely meaningless regular season finale. <laughs> Wilson has a screw loose, man. I'm telling you. It's it's part of why you love him, but it's also part of why you're like, dude, pick your spots, please. Anyway, um, I did want to note this, though, with the Capitals and what they have done here. Again, the final record for this regular season ends up being 36-15-5. That equates to a point percentage of 688. That is the fourth highest point percentage in franchise history. Yeah, like it may not have always felt this way. And with the Caps not winning the division, maybe you're like, okay, it was a good regular season, but was it that good? No, it was really good. Fourth best point percentage in Capitals history. Highest point percentage that a head coach has recorded in his first season with the Caps in franchise history. Peter LaViolette has done a masterful job with this team this season. Again, especially when you factor in all of the injuries and absences that the Caps have had to deal with, right? Seven game suspension for Tom Wilson back in March. Caps go seven, oh, and oh. Alex Ovechkin missing a bunch of games down the stretch of the season. The Caps continue to pile up wins. The COVID-19 absences earlier in the season of the four Russians, Ovechkin, Kuznetsov, Samsonov, and defenseman Dmitry Orlov. Capitals did well. More recently, right? No Kuznetsov, no Samsonov due to COVID-19 protocols. Caps continue to do well. Laviolette has really done a good job with this team. And I wanted to highlight that. Also, there's this. The Caps finished the regular season in NHL best 19-1-5 in one-goal games. Now, there's some luck involved in something like that. But still, that is a spectacular record in one-goal games, 19-1-5. So what does this all mean for the postseason? Maybe nothing, okay? We know how the Stanley Cup playoffs go. They are so flukish. They can be so random. You can be so good in the regular season and then look like trash come the first round of the postseason. We have seen that with the Capitals. We saw that last postseason when the Capitals got ravaged by Barry Trotz and the New York Islanders over five games in the first round in the hub city of Toronto. So I'm not counting on anything. I'm not assuming anything. I do know I like a lot about this Capitals team. I also do know though that the Boston Bruins are a really good team. And don't get too sucked into where the Bruins ended up finishing in the East Division. You look at some of the advanced numbers. The Bruins' profile is a very difficult matchup. I do not think this is going to be an easy series. At least it does not set up to be an easy series. But the Capitals themselves are good. The Capitals themselves have a lot to lean on here. And I hope, like heck, Ovechkin and Backstrom are healthy. Oshie and Carlson get healthy. Kuznetsov and Samsonov get their acts together. And they're back playing for the Caps because I want to see my team author another run. The 2018 Stanley Cup title was great. It remains the only time that the Capitals have made it past the second round in a postseason in the Alex Ovechkin era. This team has been too good in these regular seasons. Ovechkin has been too great for this team to only ever make it past the second round once, even if that one time was part of a run to a Stanley Cup championship. I mean, the Capitals' overall postseason history is not good. I think most people listening to this segment understand that. 30 all-time playoff appearances for the Capitals. 27 of the 30 have ended in a first or second round. The Caps have only ever made it past the second round three times. 1990, 1998, and 2018. That's it. It's not a glorious postseason history, okay? All of the series in which the Capitals have blown two-game leads, all of the Game 7 losses, especially Game 7 losses at home, like, that stuff is a very ugly part of the Capitals franchise history. Although, as I always say, in order to flop in postseasons, you need to consistently make postseasons, and the Capitals have done that in tremendous fashion. But I do think there's a pressure on the Capitals' organization, or as they say in hockey, organization, to have a run in this postseason. You can't keep having these first and second round exits. I mean, since the Caps won the Cup in 18, first round exit in 2019 against the Carolina Hurricanes, a series in which the Capitals blew a 2-0 series lead, and the first round exit in 2020, a series in which, again, Trotzee and the Isles spanked the Capitals to the tune of a 4-1 series win. Hopefully that changes, not going to be easy, but La Violette has had this team playing well for a good chunk of this year, and there's no reason that that can't continue. Another loss for the Nationals on Tuesday night. A sixth loss in seven games. Nats fall to 13-18, 6 to the final to the Philadelphia Phillies at Nationals Park in game one of a three-game series. It's too early to get caught up in the National league standings, but I will just briefly mention what's happening. The Nats are last in the NL East. The Nats now are four and a half games behind the first place New York Mets. The Mets have won six consecutive games, 3-2 walk-off win over the Orioles on Tuesday night. We'll get to that coming up in just a bit. But another frustrating game for the Nationals, offensively especially, on Tuesday night. Nats had just seven hits to go with four walks, went just one of six with runners in scoring position. And here's the thing, and this to me has driven you nuts as much as anything with the Nationals' offensive struggle so far. The Nats again got got by a subpar starter. The Philly starting pitcher on Tuesday night was Chase Anderson. Chase Anderson is a veteran who had been having a really bad season. Chase Anderson is in his age 33 season. He came into the game with an ERA of five fifty-four over six starts this year, and yet Chase Anderson, on Tuesday night, held the Nats to two runs over five innings with five strikeouts. I mean, it's not like he was dominant, but a guy who had been tattooed to the tune of a 5.54 ERA over his first six starts ends up allowing two runs in five innings with five strikeouts against you on Tuesday night. Like, that does not speak well at all for the Nationals offense. It's one thing to get dominated by Jacob DeGrom. It's another thing to be largely contained by Chase Anderson, okay? That's not the way this is supposed to go, and yet it did go that way. On Tuesday night, when by the way, the game took forever. I mean, if you ever need an example of why baseball skews so old and why young people aren't into the sport, this game on Tuesday night is it. It was a nine inning game with a final score of six two. I mean, it's not like the final score was 14 12 and yet the game took three hours, 58 minutes. You had a parade of lengthy plate appearances. You had a truckload of fouled off pitches. You add a number of walks. Nats pitchers issued eight walks in the game, three hours, 58 minutes for a nine inning game with a final score of 6-2. That is inexcusable for Major League Baseball. Baseball has got to get its arms around the issue of pace of play, but also the simple issue of length of games. Who the heck has four hours to spend on a baseball game on a Tuesday night in May when you have 162 of these things? And I say this as someone who loves baseball. I think most of you listening know that, but like I'm not blind to the faults of the game. I'm not blind to the flaws of what's going on right now. Three hours, 58 minutes cannot happen. That is not acceptable if your MLB commissioner Rob Manfred. Anyway, the offensive struggle. So look, Josh Bell again fell on his face on Tuesday night. I mean, Josh Bell comes off like a really good dude. Okay. None of this is personal. I do think he has talent. He did have a monster 2019 season for the Pittsburgh Pirates. And as I have noted, he has hit balls hard this season. The problem is, especially lately, he's not hitting anything. Okay. It doesn't matter if you're making good contact if you're not making contact. Josh Bell on Tuesday night, starting first baseman, number three batter. Why Davey Martinez had Bell as the number three batter, I do not understand. But Bell goes over 4 with two strikeouts, including the plate appearance of the game in a negative way. Striking out on four pitches with two outs, the bases loaded, and the Nats trailing 3-2 in the bottom of the seventh inning. You talk about a big spot and not delivering. That's what you had there. Again, bottom of the seventh. Bases are juiced. Nats are down by just one run. And Josh Bell with two outs strikes out on four pitches. You can always email me, the algaldi podcast at yahoo.com. Email from Jerry Moore. Galdi. When will the Josh Bell nightmare be over? Looked helpless at the plate with the bases loaded in the seventh. Need to get him out of the lineup for a while. Just can't hit right now. Really hurting the team. Looks like Chris Davis, really. That's about as low of a blow as you can administer that Josh Bell looks like Chris Davis, but you're not wrong. Josh Bell's slash line, as we speak on this Wednesday, that's batting average slash on-base percentage slash slugging percentage. I mean, listen to these numbers. A batting average of 134, an on-base percentage of 200, a slugging percentage of 293. Those numbers are putrid. Those are what I call DFA numbers. Those are numbers that get you designated for assignment, that get you cut. Now, I don't think that's gonna happen with Josh Bell, nor do I think that should happen with Josh Bell, mainly because the Nationals don't have other viable options, you know, and that's an indictment of the construction of this roster. And I don't know if Mike Rizzo wanted to do more and was not allowed to do more by the learners, or if Mike Rizzo truly thought that trading for Josh Bell and signing Kyle Schwarber was going to be the cure-all for the Nationals offensively. But it's not working out so far. You know, Schwarber's had his moments, but Bell has been an abject failure. And every time we think that Josh Bell is starting to come out of the slump, he goes right back to doing as he did on Tuesday night. Again, 0-4 with two strikeouts, striking out on four pitches with two outs. The base is loaded, and the Nats trailing 3-2 in the bottom of the seventh inning. We have got to see more of Ryan Zimmerman. You know, we saw Zim on Tuesday night, and he came through again. Two out pinch double in the bottom of the seventh, then did stay in the game for Josh Bell. Perhaps that's a sign of Zimmerman playing more. Hopefully it's a sign of Zimmerman playing more. And whatever you do, Davey, why is Bell batting in the three hole like that? He hasn't earned that. He's not having anything close to a season that is worthy of batting in the number three spot. Like, bat Josh Bell fifth or sixth even. Don't have him in a three spot like that. I didn't understand that at all with Davies' lineup on Tuesday night. But it was a rough night offensively for a lot of guys. Jan Gomes, starting catcher, number five batter, 0-4 with a strikeout. Josh Harrison, starting second baseman, number seven batter. Harrison, interestingly, got demoted in the lineup, over 4 with a couple of strikeouts. Harrison has been struggling over the last three games now, over 13 with five strikeouts. Victor Robles had a rough night on Tuesday night. Starting center fielder, number eight batter, he went over four. It's not good. I mean, this lineup is not good. It's not deep. It's not imposing. If you get out of the Nats bubble and you look at other lineups in the sport, like look at the Philadelphia Phillies lineup, okay? Like that's a lineup with some pop, with some power, with some guys having some seasons. The Nationals lineup is the antithesis of that. You've got to get multiple guys going. You don't have that right now with the Nationals. You basically have two guys who are hitting, Trey Turner and Juan Soto, and that's what you had on Tuesday night. Trey Turner had another productive game, starting shortstop, number one batter, three for four with a homer, two singles, and an incredible walk. The walk was something else. So for Trey, we'll take his plate appearances sequentially in terms of the productive ones. Lead-off single, bottom of the first. First pitch lead-off homer in the Nats, two run six. An incredible two-out walk, Phillies reliever Jose Alvarado, who had just come into the game in the bottom of the seventh. The walk capped a 14-pitch plate appearance in which Turner was down at 1.02 and then a two-out single in the bottom of the ninth inning. Also, Juan Soto, who has not looked that good since coming off the 10-day injured list last Tuesday. Remember, he was out with the left shoulder strain. I thought started to really look like his Juan Soto self on Tuesday night. Starting right fielder, number two batter, which to me is where Soto should almost always be. Your best hitter should be in the two spot. Uh, Soto one for two with a single and three walks. So you want to see him hit for power, obviously, but to see him get on base like that was great. Single in the bottom of the first six pitch walk in the Nats two run six. A two out four pitch walk that loaded the bases in the bottom of the seventh and then Josh Bell happened and a two out eight pitch walk in the bottom of the ninth despite having been down to the count at one point, one two. One, two. I mean, we know this, whoever bats behind Soto is going to see pitches because Soto more often than not is not going to see pitches. You need the guy behind Soto to be able to capitalize. And Josh Bell has not done that so far. He certainly didn't do that on Tuesday night. I do want to give Kyle Schwarber some credit. Starting left fielder, number four batter. So again, you know, Schwarber not having a great season in the cleanup spot, but he has been a little bit better lately and he did have a big hit on Tuesday night. One for three with an RBI single and a hit by pitch. He had the one out hit by pitch, bottom of the fourth and then a one out full count RBI single in the Nats. Two run sixth to cap an eleven pitch plate appearance. Like I said, there were a lot of lengthy plate appearances. That was a good piece of hitting by Schwarber to get that ribby single and that two-run national 6 inning. Eric Fetty was an ad starting pitcher on Tuesday night. Final line wasn't uh, good. It also wasn't horrendous. Like, it could have been a lot worse, I guess is what I'm trying to say here. He's lucky the line wasn't worse. He allowed three runs in five innings on five hits, a homer, two doubles, and two singles, and three walks versus four strikeouts. Fetty threw just 50 of his 87 pitches for strikes. His lone clean inning was his final inning, the top of the fifth. Fetty gave up a run in the top of the first on, yes, a two-out solo homer by our pal, the ex-national Bryce Harper, who's having a good season so far. Uh, then gave up a two-out double axing to JT Real Muto on a 1-2 pitch, though only just a one-run Ended up scoring in the inning. Fetty tossed a scoreless top of the second despite walking two of the first three batters he faced in Reese Hoskins and Odubel Herrera. Fetty allowed a run in the top of the third on a one-out seven-pitch walk of Harper. A two-out single by Brad Miller and a two-out full-count RBI single by Hoskins. And Fetty allowed another run in the top of the fourth. Lead-off double by Herrera. One-out RBI sack fly by Andrew McCutcheon. So a lot of traffic on the base pass with Fetty on the mound on Tuesday night. Like I said, three runs in five innings, the damage could have ended up being a lot worse. But this to me was a second consecutive bad outing for Eric Fetty off him, having done well over his previous four starts. I mean, the basic way to look at Eric Fetty's season now is really bad in start number one, good over the next four starts, but now back to being bad over these last two starts. So not sure where we're at with Eric Fetty at this point. Overall, I would say he's been more good than bad this season, but disappointing to see these last two outings not go as well as the previous four prior to the stretch. And then there is the Nationals bullpen, which, again, put guys on base, kind of similar to what Fetty did, largely did do well with the exception of one guy in one inning. Ultimately, five Nationals relievers combined to allow three runs in four innings, but all three of the runs came off one guy in one inning. Sam Clay got the bullpen parade going, faced four batters in the top of the sixth. Got just one out, though. That wasn't all of his fault. Shortstop Trey Turner committed a fielding error on a grounder by Reese Hoskins on an 0-2 pitch as Trey failed to scoop the ball with his glove, was perhaps distracted by third baseman Starling Castro, who was in Turner's way and essentially was screening him the way a player will try to screen a goaltender. In hockey. Turner then, by the way, had a hard time with a hard hit DD Gregorius grounder that went down as an infield single. Clay then issued a five pitch walk of O'Double Herrera to load the bases with no outs, but Clay then got the Philly starting pitcher Chase Anderson on a line out. Will Harris then came into the game in the top of the six, went out bases loaded and got the job done, retired the two batters he faced, including striking out Andrew McCutcheon. Tanner Rainey scored a seventh despite issuing back to back one out walks off striking out Harper on a nasty slider. And then the problems really happened in the top of the eighth inning. Kyle Finnegan in that inning giving up three runs, recording just one out. He gave up a leadoff double to Odubel Herrera despite him having been down in the count at 1.02, an RBI double to Alec Bohm, a five pitch walk of Andrew McCutcheon, a two out intentional walk of Harper, and a two out two run double by pinch hitter Andrew Knapp despite him having been down in the count at 1.12. And at this point, you really felt like the Nationals win probability plummeted and it did. Because the offense just has not been doing anything. So it was a bad outing for Kyle Finnegan, yes, but you know, your bullpen's not going to be locked down every game. And the way things are right now with the offense, you almost feel like the bullpen has to be locked down with every game. Oh, by the way, our friend Paulo Espino relieved Finnegan and again looked good. One and two thirds perfect innings to lower his ERA to 164. Game two for the Nats against the Phillies is on Wednesday night at seven oh five. John Lester versus Zach Wheeler. We'll see what the Nationals do offensively. You know, Wheeler so far this season has been really good. An ERA at 283. An ERA plus of 139 over seven starts. ERA plus is ERA that's adjusted for your home ballpark and your league. Anything over 100 is above average. Zach Wheeler at 139 with the ERA plus in a really good way so far this season. Lester, this will be his third start of the regular season. Five scoreless innings in start number one. Three runs in five innings in start number two. He has not been dominant, but I think largely he's done a pretty good job and it's going to have to continue because at this point you cannot count on the Nationals giving you more than say three or four runs. I mean, that's, it's a very high standard to have to hold your pitching staff to, but that's the way things are right now. Nats have got to get the bats going and it starts especially with the Josh Bell situation. Davy has got to figure this out. Either Bell's got to be better or Ryan Zimmerman needs to be playing more. All right, there was Nationals-related news that came out on Tuesday, and the news was the retirement of Jordan Zimmerman, former Nationals pitcher Jordan Zimmerman, on Tuesday morning announcing his retirement. Zimmerman, in case you have lost track of him, signed a minor league deal with the Milwaukee Brewers this past February but this season had made just two relief appearances for the Brewers and had not done well, five runs in five and two-thirds innings. It's interesting. We're starting to see some of the first-generation nationals in terms of the time in which the team has done well retire here. Gio Gonzalez announced his retirement via Instagram on March 25th, and then Jordan Zimmerman on Tuesday announced his retirement. Uh, three things to me with Jordan Zimmerman. So number one, never forget how the Nats got Jordan Zimmerman. The Nats took Zimmerman in the second round of the 2007 MLB draft out of the University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point. Zimmerman was selected with the compensatory pick that the Nats got for Alfonso Soriano signing with the Chicago Cubs in November 2006 off his 40-40 2006 season with the Nats. Remember that year, the Nationals were bad. Soriano was good. He finished with a 6.1 wins above replacement for baseball reference. And the big conversation in DC that summer when it came to the Nats was, well, when slash are the Nats going to trade Alfonso Soriano? And the Nats ended up not trading Alfonso Soriano, but it ended up working out really well because the Nats did with the comp pick that they got for Soriano leaving via free agency better than the Nats realistically would have ever done in trading Soriano. So you get Jordan Zimmerman with that comp pick. Um, I'm not a big advocate for not trading away guys who are set to be free agents and you expect to lose those guys. But in this case, it did work out. And it's it's kind of an interesting thing that the Nats were able to turn the Soriano free agent defection into Jordan Zimmerman. Second thing to remember with Jordan Zimmerman, he was a great Nats. And you really can't say that enough. Jordan Zimmerman over seven major league seasons with the Nats, 2009 through 2015, made 178 regular season starts, had an ERA of 332, had an ERA plus of 118. Zimmerman over his final four seasons with the Nats, 2012 through 2015, made at least 32 starts in each regular season. Zimmerman in his 2012 regular season, 32 starts, ERA of 294, ERA plus of 136 and a B-War of 4.9. I mean, those are really good numbers. And in 2014, his regular season was arguably better. 32 starts again, 266 ERA, 141 ERA plus in a 4.7 B-War. Uh, Jordan Zimmerman was a very good starting pitcher for the Nationals. I mean, if you're ranking the best starting pitchers for the Nationals since the franchise came here, Max Scherzer 1, Steven Strasburg 2, Jordan Zimmerman 3. I mean, I, I, you know, that's it. And there's really no debating any of those spots. But Zimmerman very much so is in that top three. He, of course, had the no-hitter, right? one nothing win over the Miami Marlins at Nationals Park. In the Nats 2014 regular season finale and the final out, unforgettable, the great running and diving Cats by the left fielder Steven Souza Jr. in the left center field gap on a liner by Kristen Yelich. Uh, Zimmerman pitched in three postseason games for the Nats. The first one did not go so well 12 4 loss at the St. Louis Cardinals and NLDS game two in 2012. Zimmerman five runs in three innings and one of many bad starts by the Nats rotation in that series. But how about the other two postseason outings? for Jay-Z. 2012 NLDS Game 4, 2-1 victory over the Cardinals at Nationals Park. The Earthquake game, Zimmerman as a reliever was electric. I'll never forget this, tossing a perfect top of the seventh with three strikeouts. Just awesome stuff. Davey Johnson aggressively, astutely deploying a starter as a reliever, and Zimmerman rewarding Davey in pitching out of his mind. Zimmerman pitched like his hair was on fire. The crowd was going nuts with Zimmerman on the mound doing this on that night. Everyone remembers the Earthquake, and rightfully so, but Zimmerman's role in that win should not be forgotten. And then the start in NLDS Game 2 in 2014. The famous 2-1-18 inning loss to the San Francisco Giants at Nationals Park. Zimmerman in that game, one run in eight in two-thirds innings. He was so good, infamously got pulled right by Matt Williams for Drew Storen in the top of the ninth of having just issued a two-out walk to Joe Panic. Storen gives up a single to Buster Posey, then a game-tying RBI double to Pablo Sandoval. And then nine innings later... The ball game ends. I still do think that Williams pulling Zimmerman in favor of Storn is defendable. Like, I don't think it's this egregious error that people make it out to be. It didn't work. I, I'll, I'll, t- t- I'll totally acknowledge that. But, I, I'm not a big believer in, like, you judge the decision by the result necessarily. Drew Storn had had a very good year. The, the notion of bringing in your ace reliever to get the final out in a game two of an NLDS best of five series, like that's not unreasonable. Storen get, didn't get the job done. And the reason the Nats lost that game, just like the reason the Nats lost that series, was the offense. The offense was horrendous for the Nationals in that 2014 NLDS against the Giants. Matt Williams pulling Jordan Zimmerman in game two of that series did not cost the Nats that series. Matt Williams was guilty of plenty of sins as Nats manager. To me, pulling Zimmerman in favor of Storen is an overrated thing that people harp on too much. And then a third thing to remember with Jordan Zimmerman off him announcing his retirement on Tuesday is this. The Nats' decision to allow Jordan Zimmerman to leave via free agency was a wise one. The Nats ultimately played the Jordan Zimmerman situation beautifully. The Nats allowed Zimmerman to leave via free agency after the 2015 season, which was his age 29 season. The Nats got Zimmerman in his 20s, then let the Detroit Tigers pay him in his 30s. Zimmerman got a five-year, $110 million contract with Detroit in November 2015, and he was awful for the Tigers. I mean, there's no other way to say it. Zimmerman over five seasons with Detroit, 2016 through 2020, an ERA of 563, and an ERA plus of 80 over 99 regular season games, including 97 starts. Zimmerman over his five seasons with the Tigers totaled 0.9 wins above replacement per baseball reference. He over his seven seasons with the Nats had 19.5 wins above replacement per baseball reference. So think about that. With the Nats, a B-war of 19.5. With the Tigers, a B-war of of 0.9. I mean, that's incredible when you think about that. Mike Rizzo will never say it, nor should he, but he played the Jordan Zimmerman situation perfectly. Cut ties, got out while the getting was still good. Jordan Zimmerman was a Tommy John guy. There is a belief with at least some of these Tommy John guys that they have shelf lives and the shelf life for Jordan Zimmerman very clearly expired after 2015, after his time with the Nats. He had a very hard time staying healthy with the Tigers, and his time with Detroit, unfortunately for him and for the Tigers, uh, did not work out. But he was a really good pitcher for the Nationals, and that, as much as anything, should never be forgotten when it comes to Jordan Zimmerman. A brutal loss for the Orioles on Tuesday night, a 3-2 walk-off loss at the New York Mets in Game 1 of a two game series a loss in which the Orioles blew a 2-0 eighth inning lead do you remember what then Arizona Cardinals head coach Denny Green said many years ago
4: they are who we thought they were and we let them off the hook
3: exactly Denny exactly the Mets were exactly who the Orioles thought the Mets were and the Orioles let them off the hook and we let them off the hook no doubt. And what makes the loss especially painful is that the Orioles lost a game in which John Means provided another gem. John Means is pitching out of his mind right now. His first start since the no-hitter, right? John Means last week tossing a no-hitter. 6 nothing win at the Seattle Mariners last Wednesday. Means very good in this 3-2 loss at the Mets on Tuesday night. Six scoreless innings on three strikeouts versus six hits, all singles, no walks. Through just 74 pitches, 52 of which were strikes, clearly could have pitched more, but manager Brandon Hyde did not want to push Means. Hyde said during his virtual pregame press conference that he did not want to push Means off Means, having thrown a career-high 113 pitches in that no-hitter last Wednesday. So Means exits after just six scoreless innings on 74 pitches. His ERA now is down to 121. His whip now is down to 0.71 over eight starts this year and the bullpen ended up blowing it. The Orioles in the game blow the 2 nothing eighth inning lead. Adam Pletko, Tanner Scott, and Cesar Valdez combined to allow three runs in two and a third innings. Now, Pletko did toss a scoreless bottom of the seventh. So, you know, had Means continued to pitch, I mean, would he have gotten more than seven innings? Probably not. Well, Pletko tossed a scoreless bottom of the seventh. So it's worth pointing that out. But Pleco then issued a leadoff five-pitch walk of Tomas Nito before striking out Jose Peraza in the bottom of the eighth. Then Scott comes into the game. He issues a one-out full-count walk of Francisco Lindor, followed by a one-out RBI single by Michael Conforto before inducing a first-pitch inning-ending double play off the bat of Pete Alonso. Then comes Valdez. He gives up two runs in the bottom of the ninth, begins things by giving up back-to-back singles to Kevin Pillar and the ex-Oriol, Jonathan VR, then gives up a one-out RBI single to Dominic Smith, then issues a one-out wild pitch to put runners on second and third, and then allows the walk-off run to score on a run-scoring fielder's choice off the bat of pinch hitter Patrick Mazika, who has done this before. Mazika previously, just a few games ago in fact, had a run-scoring fielder's choice for a walk-off win he gets another one here in this game, despite Mazika having been down on the count at one point. Oh, 2 So, I mean, classic put-away territory for a guy in Valdez who's having a good season, but he's unable to put away Patrick Mazika. And on the play, boy, was this painful. The first baseman, Trey Mancini, everybody loves him, but he made a high throw. Mancini fielded a sharply hit ground ball by Mazica fired the ball home, but the throw is high, one of several bad throws by the Orioles in the bottom of the ninth, and Villar was safe for the game-winning run. Again, let him off the hook.
0: We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data,
3: Exactly. Now, do you get all worked up when you're the Orioles and you're in the midst of a tanking rebuilding season? No, but it was painful to see the O's lose like this. And the Mets right now are rolling six consecutive victories, first place in the National League East. Orioles fall to 16 and 20. Game two at the Mets Wednesday afternoon at 1210. And how about who's pitching for the Orioles? The former Mets, the former Dark Knight of Gotham, Matt Harvey, who'll be taking on Taiwan Walker. All right, guys, look, no one's perfect. Even the best baseball players strike out with the bases loaded. The best golfer sometimes three putt with the tournament on the line. So if you feel like you come up short in the bedroom sometimes, it's perfectly okay. But if it's bothering you, there are options. Go to GetRoman.com slash Al now. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home, a US licensed healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, it ships to you free with 2-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to getroman.com/algaldi and complete an online visit. Take care of your ED without leaving home. Complete an online visit today to connect with a doctor and take care of it. Go to getRoman.com slash Algaldi now to get fifteen dollars off your first month. Look, there's a straightforward way to take care of your ED. GetRoman.com slash slash Algaldi. Get started now to save $15 on your first month of treatment. All right, that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Algaldi. You can email me the Algaldi Podcast at yahoo.com, including if you would like to become a sponsor of the podcast, let me know again, the email address, the Al Galdy podcast at yahoo.com. The 2021 NFL regular season schedule being released on Wednesday. Expect an in-depth scientific, life-changing breakdown of the Washington football team's 2021 regular season schedule on Thursday's podcast. We'll also have the Wizards to discuss as they play at the Atlanta Hawks again on Wednesday night, as well as game twos for the Nationals against the Philadelphia Phillies at Nationals Park and the Orioles at the New York Mets. And we are now in postseason mode when it comes to the Capitals. Stanley Cup playoffs, first round game one against the Boston Bruins at Capital One Arena Saturday night at 7.15. I'm getting my second COVID-19 vaccine shot on Wednesday. So hopefully I'm still in one piece come the taping of Thursday's podcast. Have a great rest of your Wednesday. I'll talk to you on Thursday.
4: For the fans. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about, but why?